Welcome to the Sound Off by Safe and Sound Schools with me, your host, Michelle Gay, presented by Entrato School Messenger, the premier school safety communications provider in the U.S. and Canada. After losing my daughter in the Sandy Hook School tragedy, I made it my mission to help protect every school and every student every day. Each week, here on the Sound Off, we'll explore the biggest issues affecting school communities from health, security, crisis prevention, and so much more. You'll hear from today's leading school safety experts to share their experiences, knowledge, and inspiration. The goal of any um, assessment that the Secret Service does is to mitigate risk. It is not about prosecution. It is not about criminalizing behavior. It's really about identifying individuals who have this idea to commit some sort of harmful action and figuring out why and what can we do to intervene. Hello, everyone. Let's talk about youth violence. It's a significant problem affecting our young people. Each day, approximately 12 young people are victims of homicide, while 1,374 are treated in emergency departments for non-fatal assault-related injuries. That, according to a CDC report released before the pandemic. Youth violence includes fights, bullying, threats with weapons, gang-related violence, and other forms of harm. The impact of this school safety issue goes beyond physical consequences. Young people who experience violence are more likely to have behavioral and mental health difficulties, which has a ripple effect on our communities and resources. So today we're focusing on the current landscape of violence prevention and behavioral threat assessment in schools. In this episode, we're speaking with Dr. Lena Alathari, Chief of the United States Secret Service National Threat Assessment Center, NTAC. She'll share her experience within the realm of behavioral threat assessment and what school communities need to know right now. Plus, how do we process school violence and keep students safe? One district strategy for gun violence prevention and Illinois' new initiative seeks help before harm. Let's dive right in. Well, hello, Dr. Lena Alathari. Thank you so much for joining us uh, to talk school safety and threat assessment and what that is and how it affects our school communities. Dr. Lena Alathari is the chief of the National Threat Assessment Center with the Secret Service. Thank you again for joining us. Hi, Michelle. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to work with Safe and Sound Schools. I want to thank you too for joining us at the summit. Uh, the raves, rave reviews are still coming in about our panel. It was was such an interesting group to be able to put together um, and and you know bring so many different perspectives to school safety. So that's really what we aim to do here is really just help broaden people's understandings of all of these different specialty areas of school safety and how they all work together. So uh, we're really excited to have you with us. Let's start a little bit uh, with your background so that you know folks have a better understanding of who you are, what your expertise is, and what you do. I had to chuckle a little bit with um, our, our panel. One of the questions that came in for you was very, very law enforcement focused, and, and you were so kind in how you redirected that. But I think that a lot of people don't really understand what the role is and what NTAC does. Sure, absolutely. And you're right, because the center operates within a federal law enforcement agency, there are a lot of sort of perceptions about who works here and what we do. But um, you know, Michelle, we've worked closely for a few years now. Um, so I'm a psychologist and I am the chief of the National Threat Assessment Center. Uh, the center is composed of multidisciplinary researchers from various um, social science and behavioral backgrounds, uh, which brings in a perspective um, to our research um, because we do have a congressional mission. We were established 20 years ago through the Presidential Threat Protection Act to study targeted violence so that we can identify, assess, and intervene with individuals who may pose a risk to one of our protected interests, the president, um, their family. So we conduct the research then we translate it operationally so that we can train on prevention. Uh, so that's our number one mission, but we've always prioritized school safety uh, as part of that since we partnered with the Department of Education 20 years ago to study school violence, uh, targeted school violence. Um, that Safe School Initiative was really the gold standard for over 20 years of how to set up uh, multidisciplinary threat assessment programs in schools 
that can identify students who are exhibiting concerning behavior or in distress and get them the help that they need. Yeah, and it's just amazing how that that work has grown, has evolved. Um, you know, Dr. Bill Modulesky is is on our advisory team as well. Uh, Dr. Marisa Rendazzo. So you know, having um, you know having exposure to some of those folks that were involved in that initial iteration of the initiative, and and to see where it is now, it's it's really exciting. So kudos to you and your team. Thank you. We're very excited. The team is very passionate about this work, as you know. Yeah, and you know, it's it's been really interesting. Um, Pre-pandemic, we spent a little time together on the road, right? After the release of Protecting America's Schools. And you know, you talked about the genesis of the work of the Secret Service, the primary focus being, you know, protection of, of the president and the president's family. Um, but it makes it only makes sense that we would take those best practices and we would translate those um, over other areas of, um, of of critical importance, you know, other other priority areas, which of course are our children and um, important institutions like our schools, right? Absolutely, Michelle. Uh, the goal of any um, assessment that the Secret Service does is to mitigate risk. It is not about prosecution. It is not about criminalizing behavior. It's really about identifying individuals who have this idea to commit some sort of harmful action and figuring out why and what can we do to intervene, whether it's mental health resources, it's building rapport and working with the family. Uh, Sometimes our agents are actually more of social workers or um, community support systems. Uh, because they do work so closely with the families of the individuals that come to our attention because we want to make sure we're keeping that person safe as well as keeping our protectees safe. So a little bit less of the men in black, would you say? And, I would you know, say. <laughs> yes. I think a we got a lot of people. No sunglasses. <laughs> sunglasses. Yeah, we, a lot of people are thinking of you guys with your, you know, your radio, radios and, uh, and comms and all of that stuff. But uh, you brought up a really, I think, um, important and I think misunderstood and maybe just completely missed, um, you know, piece of the puzzle here. And that is that this process is not really about catching bad guys, per se. It's really about intervening and so, of course, you know, preventing any kind of violence or harm to others or, or even self. But really, you know, a lot of times I think people think threat assessment, it just sounds, it sounds kind of scary. It sounds, uh, it sounds kind of punitive, maybe. The word threat is in there, um, but it really is about kind of interrupting, uh, you know, a trajectory um, of, of something that could be harmful. And, and really supporting that individual, as you said, that has come to, to your attention. Absolutely, Michelle. It's a proactive prevention is how we describe it. And you're right. Sometimes the connotation of the name threat assessment uh, might scare people a little bit. That's why it's so important that we're educating about what a threat assessment is. It's essentially bringing together multidisciplinary individuals. So, for example, in a school setting, that would be the counselor Um, the principal, a teacher, um, a coach could be on it, the school resource officer, because everyone has a perspective and that will lend itself to being able to assess what interventions you need. Um, Sometimes teachers, and you know that, Michelle, um, are the ones that see maybe concerning student behavior or maybe a student feels empowered to come to a teacher when they're worried about a, a classmate. Uh, So that teacher needs to know, I am part of a team. There is someone I can talk to about this. So that we're sort of breaking down the um, compartmentalized silos of information. Truly. I mean, I think back to my days in the the classroom and, and as a young teacher, I really wasn't sure where to go when there was something that concerned me about the health, welfare, um, wellness, and, and maybe even in, in some cases, um, you know, the, the safety of, of some of my students. It would, it would take a long time and a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of personal initiative to try to figure out which channel and who to go to and, and who would listen. So, you know, when I started this journey of founding Safe and Sound Schools and, and really beginning to look at how we could 
break down some of that that disconnect for the everyday stakeholders of school safety, the teachers, the parents, the students. Threat assessment was one of the very first things that I stumbled upon, and it was just like this big light bulb went off. Um, you know, and there are so many different programs out there. I mean, it all really comes down to the same basic model that the Secret Service is using. Um, but there are a variety out there of different programs and models that our, our schools are, are taking advantage of. Can you speak a little bit to um, how it can look different and and um, and how it can even look different in, in you know, school by school, community by community? Sure, absolutely. So um, one of the things I want to point out to people uh, is our Enhancing School Safety Guide. So what we did, and this was following the tragedy at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, is we realized right away that we needed to release updated guidance uh, for the country uh, so that schools know what to do because no community wants this to happen uh, in their school. Uh, we want to keep our kids safe. And so the guide provides actionable steps that schools can take to establish these type of programs. And it really is scalable to the unique uh, needs of a school or a community. Think of it as a blueprint. Um, and then it can be taken um, and uh, tailored to how that school or that district wants to do it. So in some communities, you have schools that um, share threat assessment teams across the district. But in other communities, a school has its own. Uh, in some communities, you have eight people on a team. In some, it's three, four people. The most important thing is that you have a place that people can report concerning behavior to, a centralized reporting mechanism, and you have a group that's highly trained in assessment, not mental health assessment, but assessing concerning behavior, where to gather information from, and then acting on it. And I really think that's the most important. And we've seen communities being uh, very proactive about it and setting up school safety teams, assessment and care teams, threat assessment teams. So the names may be different, but the goal is the same. We want to keep our kids safe. And it's not about um, stigmatizing children. It really is about getting them help. Uh, one of the things that we always talk about and the finding in our research is there is no one profile of the type of student who will carry out an attack. Uh, we've seen them vary across demographics, um, social. There were some popular kids, uh, but so also some kids that were isolated, uh, well-performing kids, kids on teams. So there really isn't a, a specific profile. You know that sometimes there's a misconception, oh, it's the loner, um, you know, that, that odd, the hoodie, the odd yeah. student with the hoodie. But really, these are just everyday children that engage in a concerning behavior for a motive, whether it's a grievance, whether they're being bullied, whether they're having adverse home life factors, which we see in our research uh, quite uh, frequently uh, in terms of negative home life factors and depression and suicidality feelings for the kids. So that's why it's really important that community communities are doing this. Um, one of the other things that I can talk about a little bit is um, some of the cases that we consult on. So in addition to the Secret Service and TAC providing research and training, we also consult with uh, anyone who wants to set up these type of programs uh, at no charge uh, or... Um, Say that again. At, at no charge. <laughs> <laughs> it's all free. It's all part of our mission is to help communities um, build these capabilities, um, but also sometimes on complex threat cases. So we have employees reaching out. Um, businesses when they're concerned about an employee who's you know might be um, uh, causing um, uncomfort uh, uncomfortableness with the colleagues or making threats, but also students. Uh, and you'd be um, maybe not so surprised since we talked about sometimes people don't know what to do because most of the time the behavior that elicited concern does not rise to the level of a criminal act. Uh, and so sometimes people think, well, what can I do? Uh, I'm just a teacher or I'm an SRO and this isn't criminal um, or, you know, that I shouldn't be involved in this. But what we often see is that everyone has a role in the prevention. It's everyone's responsibility. And so if a student is posting threatening content, uh, maybe alluding 
to something bad happened. And if a student comes forward and says, hey, I saw this on Instagram or on Snapchat and a teacher acts on it, that's the success stories. And if you look at our latest report, Averting Targeted School Violence, that looked at quite significantly serious plots that represented a big threat. Um, they were thwarted because someone came forward and a responsible person acted on it. Uh, and that's really the message and the goal of these programs. Yeah, I mean, it's it's less about um, you know a criminal act. It's, it's really about the warning signs, right? Teaching people to pay attention, as Peter Langman put it in, in his book, our, our good friend, Dr. Peter Langman, warning signs, right? Indicators, um, something's not right. This person needs help. This person needs support. This person needs resources. And of course, this applies not just in our schools, um, but out in the workplace. And of course, schools are a workplace. And, and so it's critically important that you know we're not just looking at um, the needs that a student may present, but it could be staff members or, or school community members as well. You mentioned in all of these sort of, you know, the, the ways that could look different from community to community, you mentioned one word every single time, and that was team. So I want to spend a little bit more time with that because I, I think that's really important for people to to understand. It's uh, it's not just, you know, when I, when I talked about being a young teacher and not knowing where to go, I was really looking for the person, you know, who is, do I report this to the principal or do I report this to the police or... Um, but in this case, it's it's a team, right? And let's talk a little bit more about that that team based approach and what that. I mean, to me, that's just such a game changer. But let's let's talk about why that team is just so very important. Absolutely, it really is. Um, and, and as I said, it's it's the perspective, right? So first of all, if you have a team of people that are charged with um, the safety. Uh, of a community, let's say a school, um, then that, you know, that's going to really break down those um, compartmentalized uh, information where maybe the coach notices something but doesn't talk about it, or maybe only mentions it to the teacher and doesn't go anywhere, uh, which we've seen that as well in previous um, incidents of, of targeted school violence, where a few teachers talk to each other about a student, but never it never went beyond that. Uh, and then that that student went on to have, you know, unfortunately, uh, a negative outcome. Um, so that's why it's so important, because not only does it break down those silos, but also it brings the different perspectives to the table. Uh, even for us, for example, in NTAC, we are multidisciplinary because the research needs to have the different perspectives. We need people who have mental health background people who have statistical background, people who have uh, operational background and a law enforcement background. Our research is to benefit the community from an operational perspective. So of course, a law enforcement background is gonna help to bring that investigative mindset uh, into the research projects. What, what variables should we be looking for? What is actually happening in communities? Uh, what are the challenges communities face? So that's why it's so important to have a team. Uh, and within the school, you have people who are trained in their own special areas, uh, such as a counselor, um, such as a principal. So for example, if a team has a leader, then you know information will be acted on and there will be a trail. People will be assigned roles and responsibilities. Who's going to interview classmates? who's going to talk to the family, who's going to talk to the student that elicited concern, and then coming back together to put all these pieces together so that you can get an accurate picture. And that really is impossible to do if you don't have a team. Truly. And, you know, it just makes me think of the, the information sharing capability that comes about when you're bringing all of these people physically together or at least even virtually, right? So it's really not enough to to designate this multidisciplinary team, um, this sort of standing team where you know you might you might be pulling in other people case on a case by case basis as as to their relationships with a, a particular student or or staff member. But when you bring people together, um, in conversation, even if they think there's nothing that they have to talk about at this meeting, something always comes out. 
you know, um, oh yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Or yeah, I was talking about this the other day. It just sort of piqued my interest and made me look twice. Um, but bringing that team together is critically important. It's not a matter of just, you know, putting the names on the roster. It's a matter of bringing that team together to have conversations in some very casual meetings. Sometimes important information comes out uh, that teams are able to, to act upon and, and think through differently. And, you know, you mentioned the different perspectives. Um, there is a trend in some of our larger and, and urban school communities to really be pushing or defunding, um, you know, police um, involvement in, in our schools. And, and this is just one, you know, area where it's critically important that people understand all of the sort of specialists on the team, right? Um, regardless of how your school community is engaging with law enforcement, it's not an option to to exclude, you know, a law enforcement from this team. Ideally, we want to see school resource officers on the team who have relationships with children, but perhaps even, you know, some type of liaison or relationship with local law enforcement, correct? So our research has supported that, Michelle. We know that teams are important, the different perspective is important, and as you said, they shouldn't just even be meeting when there is a concern. They should be meeting regularly so that you learn, uh, you're doing exercises, uh, you're getting to know each other. Uh, when you're cohesive, that's when you have successful outcomes and everyone has a responsibility. Our research has shown, so Protecting America Schools studied um, attacks that were uh, perpetrated in which students and school community uh, staff were harmed. Um, it looked at a, a period of about 10 years of perpetrated attacks. And I have to say that not one single attack was stopped uh, by outside law enforcement. Uh, the attacks were either stopped where the student uh, themselves, uh, unfortunately, they committed suicide or left the scene uh, or uh, a school person intervened. And when it was law enforcement, it was always the SRO who intervened. Uh, to stop these attacks. And if you look at our second report that we released this year, looking at plots, most often students were best situated to observe this concerning behavior and report it to an adult at the school. And many times that was the SRO and it was the SRO who acted on it. So it's important. And if you look at what really the role of an SRO is, it's very different from traditional policing. Uh, and in fact, and you know, Mo Kennedy, the executive director of NASRO, talks about this all the time. Not every law enforcement officer is suited to be an SRO. It's a very unique role. It is really about becoming a trusted adult at the school. It is not about um, looking for evidence or criminalizing. Uh, it's providing the school with safety and support. And there are moments when they will be the ones that will notice that, nope, this is a significant threat, and we have to make sure we're doing everything we can, gathering information to thwart it. Uh, there is a role for that in the school as well. You know, I liken sometimes the the role of the role of the SRO to the school nurse um, in conversations to just help people to understand because I think it's another area similar to threat assessment where there is a lot of confusion about the purpose of the role and 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 how SROs interact with students. But you know, just as students would go to the school nurse if they have some type of health related concern or issue as that trusted adult or liaison or counsel. They do the same thing, and we see that your evidence bears that out, your research bears that out, that students are making use of that resource that is the school resource officer in this process. And that's what we want to see, right? It's not just this adult process where, you know, there's the adults meeting, you know, in secret behind a, a closed door and, and you know, discussing uh, this case or that case or that concern. The, the threat assessment process is really about engaging the community, involving the community and working together to to not only prevent, but, you know, to intervene and, and offer resources and help wherever they may be needed. Correct. Absolutely. And just to give you an example, a few months ago, I was contacted by an SRO uh, who was concerned about one of his students at the school. Um, this student was exhibiting really concerning behavior. He um, was uh, 
um, sort of acting odd at the school, looking like he was taking pictures, doing surveillance. Uh, the mom had, uh, he, the SRO has a great relationship with the mom, and she contacted him to say that he's hearing voices. She actually contacted local law enforcement because the student told her that he was hearing voices to make a bomb, and he was tinkering with wires. Uh, he, at one point, um, led police on a chase going 70 miles an hour. So clearly the student had a lot of truly concerning behavior. And when we consulted with the SRO, he said that there are charges against the student for one of these, um, uh, the, the car chase, but he's so concerned because he really thinks the student needs mental health care. And so this SRO called every state hospital in his state to try to get this student help, and he couldn't get anywhere. He called um, local, uh, lo some other local agencies. He called another federal agency and it wasn't until he contacted us. And basically, all we did was validate his concerns and give him some ideas of where to go to get assistance. And he actually emailed us and he posted about this and talked to his uh, police chief that he truly believes that had we not gotten involved, um, this would have been another Parkland tragedy. Um, this student was deteriorating and escalating and engaging in truly concerning behavior. And now, this SRO, instead of, you know, having the student go to juvenile system, um, was able to secure him um, mental health uh, assistance at a long-term care facility. The mom is very happy. The student's getting help. And this is truly what we want these members of the team to do, is to be proactive about really assessing why is this student engaging in this behavior and what are the best options for them. I mean, that's just an amazing story. Saving a child and perhaps uh, many others and, and a community from the devastation that uh, many of us are, are still reeling from in our own communities. I think, you know, you, you mentioned the word behavior. I've heard you maybe say it 10 or 15 times in, in this conversation. Um, let's talk about behavior. Uh, why is behavior the focus of this process? Why is that so important? It's so important, Michelle, because in every report we release, whether it's our mass attack series of reports that occur in public spaces or school attacks, uh, or even attacks against um, you know, government officials, what we see over and over is, as I said, there is no profile or a characteristic of an attacker. However, we do see common behaviors and situational factors in the background of the attackers. So when the Secret Service conducted the first study that looked at assassination from this operational perspective uh, 20 years ago, and that's the study that actually coined the term targeted violence. What we um, shifted our focus is, we called it from a threat-based to a behavior-based approach. We wanna look at the thinking and behavior of individuals who are um, engaging in behavior that should elicit concern. And when it comes to students, this behavior could include suicidality, uh, inappropriate and uh, obsessive interest in previous incidents of attacks in attackers, um, uh, behavior changes, conflicts with peers, um, um, and also in addition to the behavior, as I said, the circumstances. A lot of these kids that have gone on to conduct these attacks were dealing with either mental health symptoms, uh, and in the age population of K through 12 schools, as you know, that most includes depressive symptoms uh, and suicidal ideation. Uh, they were dealing with significant um, conflict. Some were the subject of bullying. We saw that 20 years ago, and we see it again in our research, uh, that bullying still is a factor in driving uh, someone to resort to violence as an option to deal with their circumstance. Uh, as I said, the negative home life factors and the average um, negative factor in our Protecting America schools for, a, for one of the attackers would be about three to four. So think about that. Each one of these students had at least three or four negative home life factors. What um, these adverse childhood experiences, including uh, parental incarceration, drug use in the home, abuse, neglect, uh, and so on. So when you have a multidisciplinary team, you can be looking at what are the behaviors that we should be aware of? And that's why training, training, training is so important. 
unfortunately, we've seen incidents um, in which they did have a threat assessment, um, but that threat assessment was not done properly because that person had never received training on how to do a threat assessment. So just having a team in place um, in itself is not alone. You've got to be training on the behaviors. Um, and really, if we are focusing on behaviors, then it's being done right. If we're focusing on a type of student, then it's being done wrong. And that's really a very important message. Well said, well said. And I think, you know, the information sharing aspect and, and really just it, it's a process. I think people really need, need to understand that this this is a process and and this process is not meant for one single person to do. You know, you mentioned that um, in, in some of these cases where it where it didn't didn't go as it should have there wasn't really a fully developed or trained team. And in fact, in some of these tragedies, it was all on one person to do the threat assessment. And that, of course, is, is not the way that this thing works. Uh, you can't really be sharing information with, with just yourself. Um, really need those, those different perspectives to, to balance that out. Um, and you mentioned the home life. That's, that's something that, that was... Um, that was a new area of exploration, I guess, if you will, in this latest round. Um, it was a very significant finding, um, you know, in the past uh, that wasn't that wasn't covered by uh, the research from 20 years ago. Is that right? Right. Um, and then we delved into much, much more deep uh, um, exploration. Um, and one of the things that actually really helped us is we were able to secure um, in studying these 41 attacks all of the non-public records by working through our Secret Service field offices um, with their local law enforcement to um, get us the information from those agencies, whether it's from police and courts. So we really had access to a lot of information about the uh, background of the attacker. And what was so significant is this finding of the home life factor. So we always knew that people who, uh, students who engage in um, these acts have had significant stressors leading up to their attack. Uh, and, you know, all kids have stressors. Uh, but when you're talking about, you know, significant ones, whether it's like, a, you know, at that age group, a breakup, as I said, bullying was big. But we didn't realize the depth of information that we were able to gather on their home life factors. Uh, what is happening in the home? And really, you know, we see kids at school, a lot of times we don't know what's happening in the home. And that's why it's really so important to make sure parents are educated. Uh, you know, some parents don't even know how their child is behaving in a school. Um, and so it's really important when we're contacted by, let's say, a school psychologist who's concerned about a student. This is another case that happened. Um, that the student was reported for posting a threat and so on. Uh, it turns out that student's you know, mom had just passed away and um, his dad was, according to the teachers, uh, sort of um, tough to deal with and so on. And so the psychologist was afraid to kind of talk to the dad uh, to instigate something. But, you know, we really encouraged that. You know, that's one of the first thing I said to her. I said, the student just posted on Instagram about carrying out a school shooting. You're going back to in-person school in three days. And you're weigh the risk. You're worried about instigating the dad. I said, the parents need to know uh, what is happening with this child. Uh, and they wound up actually calling the dad. The dad had no idea what was happening. He was very receptive. And now that student was able to get counseling. Um, and so it's really important that we recognize that there may be things in the home or in the background of the individual that we don't know about. And if we're not bringing the parents into the process, um, then we won't know. And in some cases, that's where law enforcement also plays a role because law enforcement may be responding to that person's house for domestic violence or some other things that are happening in that home. So they have the information about that student's home life. Uh, and that's why it's very important that we are really working as a team. Absolutely. And as you said, and this, this story I think illustrates, you know, ideally parents are part of the team. 
You know, if the goal is to save that child and provide interventions for that child and and prevent violence and and harm to others or self, uh, we absolutely need parents to to be part of that team. So, so much to to think about. Um, But you did mention one last thing that I would like to delve into a little bit deeper before we wrap up and I let you go back to work at the Secret Service. And that is um, the the return to school and what we are seeing nationally in the field of school safety in communities across the country in terms of increase increases in uh, violent behavior, concerning behavior, and and even increases in threat assessment, which is which is a not necessarily a bad thing. If we're seeing more threat assessments taking place, that means more communities are engaging in the process and are um, being proactive. But uh, can you talk a little bit about what we're seeing now as we're reopening school doors after you know many 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 months of isolation and and shuttered schools? Right. So I can only speak anecdotally, of course, we've not collected Mm -hmm. data, but we know that um, obviously the pandemic has caused significant stressors uh, on everybody, uh, adults and students. Um, And we know that statistics has shown that, for example, domestic violence rates have gone up during the pandemic. Obviously, that's going to impact students. That's going to impact the children uh, who are experiencing these or seeing it. Uh, So they're going to be bringing that stress to school with them. We know that there's so many unknowns about COVID and and the pandemic and where it's going, um, that when kids are coming to school, uh, are we giving them the information? We don't even know the information. Um, You know, you have adults stressed about this. So, of course, students are going to have that. And then the last piece is that students had been disconnected, disconnected from friends, uh, possibly socially um, disconnected. Um, and that really is uh, a stressor as well for kids in that age. So some people thrive, obviously, in a virtual environment. Not everyone. Um, I have know. a child that did really well. Right. Really yeah. well. The other one, right. oh, my gosh. Right. Wow. It, it was very challenging. It all depends on their personalities. Yes. You know, some people Everybody's in a virtual different. environment are less distracted. Uh, I'll be all over the place looking for things. But um uh, but some really, you know, were disconnected. And now all of a sudden you've got all these pressures that have been going on and kids are going back to school and now they have to deal with the new normal. And are we, and then you have the adults at the school trying to deal with keeping kids physically safe, um, healthy, um, you know, looking at how can we keep our community safe? Obviously, I'm not an expert on that, but the masks and the social distancing and all the rules and how do we keep our community healthy? So you've got all of these things converging. Uh, and of course, that's going to cause increased um, mental health um, symptoms. Uh, we know that, uh, and I just saw a statistics the other day about the um, suicides, um Reporting has is going up as well. Suicide ideation, the hotlines are flooded. All of that um, is sort of creating a situation that could permit violence. And so we have to be making sure that we're keeping our teachers healthy. We are supporting our teachers, our counselors, our school staff, so that they can be supporting our kids. Now more than ever, right? Now more than ever. Dr. Lena Alathari, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing um, about threat assessment and uh, letting us all know, you know, the NTAC is there for us, right? So we want these processes, we want these teams in our in our schools and communities, um, but you exist as a resource to these, these teams. Uh, you receive calls from little teachers and, you know, principals and school resource officers and, you know, the stories speak for themselves, um, but we need to get the word out there about this process for sure. It's, um, it, we're only just getting started, I think, and it's just the power of prevention is, is everything. That's where it needs to be. So thank you again for joining us, and I know we'll have you back again soon. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, Safe and Sound Schools, for everything that you're doing to keep our kids safe. When it comes to school safety, our friends at Entrato School Messenger have school communities covered. 
They deliver advanced school safety solutions that lead to safer environments for our children. With over 40 years in public safety and more than 20 years in schools, Entrato School Messenger is uniquely positioned to serve your school safety needs. Entrato Safety Suite combines the most advanced emergency management, response, on-campus notification, and parent communication tools together to create a 360-degree wall of protection against all kinds of school safety threats. To learn more, visit entrato.com slash safety suite for education. Now it's time for a segment we call The Sound Off, where we weigh in on some trending school safety stories. And today, we're focusing on violence prevention. In early October, a Houston charter school reported a shooting in southwest Houston. The school's principal was grazed by a bullet and hospitalized after confronting the gunman. Houston Public Media posed these questions. How do we process events like this as a community and as parents? And how do we keep students safe and help them to feel safe again? Experts in psychology and school violence shared some insights. Here are just a few takeaways. First, check in with students often while giving them the space to process themselves. A good way to strike this balance is by asking open-ended questions that allow kids to have a sense of agency, such as, what do you think of this? Second, if you're a parent or guardian, don't be afraid to show how you feel with the teens in your family. And third, as a parent or guardian, model healthy responses and ways of dealing with challenges. This could mean, as mentioned, having open and honest communication, limiting time spent watching news related to the incident, and avoiding using vices to cope. All of these takeaways uh, resonate with me and, and my experiences uh, as a grown-up trying to process while understanding pretty clearly that my kids were watching me every step of the way. In fact, they were watching all of the grown-ups in our community, our, our leaders, our, our educators, uh, our administrators, our neighbors and friends. And that sense of agency is equally important. So while they're watching us and we need to be aware that we are inadvertently modeling how to go through these processes, it's important that we are acknowledging the process that our kids are going through. It's really easy for us grown-ups to step in, to take action, and, and try our best to keep our kids out of these events and, and out of the work of, of processing them. But if we do that, we are, in a sense, ripping them off. We're, we're depriving them of the opportunity to come forward with their own observations and insights, and we really are stealing that sense of agency from our kids. It's really important that we're mindful about that process. Those open-ended questions are everything, um, and, and I want to sort of double down on the open-ended part of that, uh, that takeaway because it's really easy for us uh, to, to check in with kids, you know, how you doing? Uh, you okay? And those types of questions are the ones that we want to avoid. There's nothing harmful about them, but they're dead-end questions. If it's the kind of question that your kid can answer with a one-word answer, like fine, good, okay, then it's the wrong question. We want to be asking questions that provoke them to take a breath and answer with at least one question or delve a little bit deeper. What we're trying to indicate to our kids is that we're not just asking that sort of cursory, obligatory, how you doing kind of question. We really do want to know what they're thinking and feeling, and that could not be more important. And then as well, I think that point about limiting time watching the news, that cannot be overstated. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's on, it's around, our kids are thinking about it and processing it through every move of their day. Um, and, and to be inundated constantly in the community and on the news with, with talk about and, and examining, you know, examination about uh, these events, um, that can just be too much. In fact, that can be too much for adults as well. So it's something to be really mindful about. You know, it's fine to, to check in for a limited period each day, um, but don't let that become the background noise in your home and, and in your school community. We want to allow our kids the space to process and talk and think, 
but it's really important that we are modeling moving forward one step at a time. It's hard to do that when everyone is hyper-focused on the events and uh, picking them apart and talking about them all day long. It's really hard to get back to some sense of life. And I think at the end of the day, um, just a, a reminder to all of us that our kids are at the center of all of these types of events and incidents in our community, and every step of the way, they are watching us. We know that school violence does physical and psychological damage, but something we don't often discuss is the economic toll that it takes on our communities. A recent report from the World Bank and the End Violence Partnership Safe to Learn Global Initiative shows that violence in and around schools severely impacts not only educational outcomes, but results in an estimated $11 trillion in lost lifetime earnings. The study, Ending Violence in Schools, an investment case, finds that violence in schools is widespread in most countries. This leads to lower grades, higher levels of absence, fewer friendships, less trust in teachers, and other problems. These school-based issues for students affected become losses in earnings when they reach adulthood. All the investments we make in education become irrelevant if children aren't safe at school, stressed Jamie Saavedra, Global Director for Education from the World Bank. So to address this urgent issue, the report recommends interventions all along the life cycle, starting in early childhood, young ages, and continuing in primary and secondary schools as well. There's a lot of additional solutions and um, takeaways that you can find in the CDC's Violence Prevention Technical Package. We'll share that link as well here. But the CDC is basically talking about something I think we all know, youth who experience any kind of violence as victims, perpetrators, or witnesses are more likely to have behavioral and mental health difficulties. And that includes future violence perpetration, victimization, smoking, substance abuse, obesity, high-risk sexual behavior, depression, obviously academic difficulties, dropout situations, and suicide and self-harm. And it's not really, it's not just only major incidents like what we experienced at Sandy Hook that we're talking about. These, these incidents can be one-on-one -on -one incidents of assault or violence. Um, they can even be bullying or intimidation. The impact is longstanding and it's really fascinating that this project is starting to help, I think, shed light on an aspect that helps maybe communities to quantify some of the uh, the loss, some of the um, expense, some of the destruction really of our school communities, um, that the impact is far greater, I think, than most really realize. And I know just in, in our community of Sandy Hook, you know, sometimes I think people think, Oh, money must have poured into the community to to support uh, victims, families, and the community, and and certainly a lot of incredibly generous people sent you know small donations, uh, even large donations. Uh, GE sent twenty million dollars to build a community center. I think for these reasons, knowing that um, the community would be would be needing support, you know, long term. But I think um, really taking stock taking um evaluating the toll that it it takes the the cost and the financial you know impact of these tragedies is something that that maybe can serve as an important wake-up call for schools and school communities around the globe next we've discussed how states across the country are reporting a rise in violence According to Uniform Crime Reporting Statistics, violent crime is up 10.5% between 2020 and 2021 in Gainesville, Florida. Officials there are discussing turning to the arts for an answer to the problem. The proposal is to transform a local elementary school into a cultural arts center for young people. Duval Elementary closed back in 2016 and is currently being leased to nonprofits that benefit students. Community leaders believe this could reverse the crime increase by keeping youth engaged. 
It's just one of several initiatives the police department is working on, including gun buyback programs, a neighborhood response council, and utilizing social media campaigns. This is positively brilliant. There's a field of study within safety and security um, that originated decades ago um, in crime-ridden urban communities. It's called SEPTED, or Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design, and it's made its way into the field of, of school safety and really has proven to be quite effective. You might not think that it could be so powerful to engage students uh, in beautifying, you know, um, the the school campus, the school building, um, or a community center like this. But we know that this is a strategy that has turned around uh, some of these incidents of violence um, that has turned around these numbers, these rises that, that we are currently facing right now. And the reason is really pretty simple. You know, anything that we can do to communicate to students that this building is theirs, this community is theirs, and they are an important part of it. In fact, they are leaders in the community. That increases their connection to the community, that increases their engagement and their sense of purpose. So protecting the community, protecting the building, protecting one another is something that's really very central to this strategy and can be a low cost, even no cost way to turn around this cross the board increase that we are seeing in violent crime in communities and schools across the country. Let's end with a look on the bright side. In an effort to prioritize school safety, the state of Illinois is launching a new initiative called Safe to Help Illinois. In the absence of a trusted adult, students can use a free app, text option, or a website to anonymously share school safety issues. From there, information is submitted to the platform and relayed immediately to the appropriate department, 911, local school officials, mental health professionals, and or law enforcement. Safe to Help is not intended to punish students, but instead encourage young people to seek help before harm. The program is available 24-7 and at no cost to all school districts statewide. During the last school year, 19 schools participated in a pilot of the program. The schools, both remote and in-person, saw notifications about self-harm, suicidal ideation, bullying, fighting, and sexual assault. Educators enrolled in Safe to Help credited the resource with successful intervention of potential suicides and sexual assaults. To date, more than 30 schools are registered with the program. Amazing. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode and can join us again next week. Thank you to our presenting sponsor, Intrato School Messenger, for supporting this podcast. And thank you all for listening. Till next time, stay safe, everybody. Stay safe and sound.